Hi, this is Rick Emmett of Triumph, and you're listening to Iron City Rock. Yo, this is Tyler from Tyler Bryant and the Shakedown. You're listening to Iron City Rock. Hey, this is Matt Storm, and you're listening to Iron City Rock. All right, Welcome to episode 481 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I am your host, John, coming to you from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing you the best rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues talk on the net. Episode 481, we have two very special guests joining us. For the first time, oddly enough, from King's X, we have Mr. Ty Tabor. Uh, Ty has a brand new solo record out. Hard to believe he has almost as many solo albums out as King's X has uh, studio albums, so we're going to talk to him about this newest album, Shades, which is available now on Rat Pack Records. We're also going to be joined by the Kentucky Headhunters, so uh, we're kind of going kind of two different musical directions for this episode. Hope you enjoy uh, the diversity in the music. Ty obviously really needs no introduction to fans of hard rock, progressive rock. Um, his he wears his Beatles influences proudly on his sleeve. Uh, a very revered guitar player uh, for his tone. Uh, you know, he gets, when it comes to tone, he's one of those guys where people talk about uh, with the George Harrison, with uh, Eric Johnson um, sort of playing. So really wanted to dig into that a little bit with him and his playing, the newest album, the songwriting, how 2020, 2021 have really kind of gummed up uh, the band's plans. Uh, Ty talks a little bit in detail towards the end of the interview about forthcoming music from King's X. So I don't want to spoil anything. I'll let you listen to that and get that information. So we're going to play you a little taste of uh, Ty's latest record. We'll talk to Ty and then we'll get with the Kentucky Headhunter. <laughs> Run, but her feet were glued. I'm insane. 
to Welcome Back to City Rocks. We have Ty Tabor on the line. How are you doing, Ty? I'm great. Thank you. We appreciate you doing this. You've got a new album, Shades, coming out uh, tomorrow, actually, as, as of the recording of this. Um, this obviously had some personal subject matter in the lyrics, but can you kind of talk a little bit about the inspiration behind the record for those not familiar? Um, well, I'm, I I think there's more than one inspiration behind the record, but there, I think what you might be referring to mm-hmm. is... Uh, there were a couple of really heavy-duty songs mm. uh, on the record that were basically about my dad passing away. And uh, he passed away in December of 2019, and I started recording and writing uh, music for the album shortly after that. So that influenced some of the music, but I didn't really want to make it an entire album of sure. uh you know, of subject matter that heavy. So I, I limited the, it to a couple of songs that were directly about him. And then the rest of it, it kind of varies off, and it's about all kinds of different things in life. Are you a, a person who finds, you know, kind of burying yourself in the work is, is a bit therapeutic, or is it something that would kind of plan? I know some artists will map out years in advance when they're going to record and tour. And, you know, was this something that you, you kind of, threw yourself into because of that situation? I think it was just the fact that the whole world kind of opened up yeah. uh, as, as far as, uh, you know, no no more going, I mean, I guess closed down is a better way to put it. Yeah. Um, no more touring for a while right after my dad passed, and so I suddenly had time on my hands that I didn't intend to have and just decided to... Uh, see what would happen you know uh, i was feeling you know usually if you're going through something that's a pretty good time to write for some reason i think artists get more inspiration from pain than probably anything else and so i i thought well i i should just use this time and and see what happens but i don't really normally plan out i'm going to do an album starting january and be done by march you know I, i i'm more of a follow the flow and yeah because uh, you never know go in one day and it's just not happening and you, you can't force the issue so i just wait for things to happen and and uh kind of it's probably very frustrating for for the record company because yeah. uh, you know it's it they they know it's uh, ebb and flow with me so. yeah i, I always you know, marvel at artists that can do that you know in august i'm going to start my next record should have it done by the middle of september you know back on the road like how do you do you you know unless you're penning songs along the way that's you know a lot to ask to have inspiration just kind of find you on a calendar you know so it's well you know the way the way king's x used used to work in the early days we were very much like that on a schedule of we will tour till September. We'll be going in the studio in December, whatever. You know, we always knew well ahead of time that that, that exact kind of thing. And you're right. Uh, when when I was in a situation like that where uh, it really wasn't a choice, um, I was writing all the time. And so was Doug and Jerry. So that there was just always material when it came time to work on an album. There was a lot a lot to uh, listen to and go through and and, and work on. So. Uh, we I have worked that way before, and that is the way you accomplish it is just by always writing and always having material coming. 
but uh, I don't prefer to work that way. That's why I don't do it when I don't have to. When, when you write in that kind of forced means versus the way you, you know you kind of approach this project, do you find yourself with more kind of pieces that you, you end up kind of throwing away? You know, things you wrote because you were just trying to force that issue, or is that just a common byproduct of songwriting in general? You know, even without a time constraints. I think that in the situations, mainly early King's X, uh, when we had, you know, rigid schedule, I think it was just, uh, we didn't really feel, I don't remember feeling like we were having to force any issues Mm -hmm. uh, because I think we were just being overly prolific in writing lots and lots and lots, no matter where we were in schedule. So when it came time to to be in the studio, it was almost like uh, a discovery, exciting discovery time to go through everybody's songs and see what we had, you know, as thing, you know, and Mm -hmm. basically the way that works is if all three of us get excited about somebody's idea, that one certainly goes on the list. And, and it usually kind of falls in place and doesn't really, it never did feel forced, uh, just because of writing too much music. But yeah, a lot gets left on the side by doing that, but that's okay. Um, I'd always rather have a sea of music to choose from to try to come up with something good. Right. Are you a, a kind of person that goes back to the old Fostec Tascam cassettes and, and scrounges for ideas of things you did in the past, or do you just kind of, focus when you're when you're doing an album like shades you just kind of say okay i'm going to start with a fresh canvas i'm writing for this record specifically i think on the last two albums i did both i uh wrote new songs for the record and uh and looked at some old ideas uh and i like to do that i keep all my ideas i have so many unfinished songs it's just ridiculous but but i like that because uh, sometimes the time is just not right for a song. For instance, uh, one of the first songs, the first song that I wrote in Drop D that kind of got King's X headed in that direction was a song called Pleiades, but it wasn't on the first album. And uh, that kind of stuff happens a lot, where it's a, it's a song that we feel is good, but if we just didn't feel magic with it when we played it, we'll set it aside and try it again next time. And so Pleiades, which was our first drop D song, it didn't make it on a record till the second album. So that's not unusual. Uh, that stuff, you know, it's just not its time yet. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you keep it, absolutely, because next time around it may suddenly magically work. Is it, when a song like that comes along and you say, okay, you know, this is the time for it on the second album, is, is some of that kind of, based on where the song fits as a cohesive unit of work inside the album framework you know you know this song just doesn't make sense on album one but you know two three albums later it it works with the other 11 songs or what have you on that album does that kind of factor in at all i i can't say that it does very often because we're very much of the give it a shot or wait for the magic and then give it another mm-hmm. shot kind of thing and and then so that we we everything's still open and pos you know possible as far as playing it and, and so I, I don't i don't i i don't 
really self-analyze too much uh, until right. we start doing interviews like this, and yeah. I have to think about it. We just, we just uh, usually it, things just fall into place for us when it comes to music, and that's that's the only way I know how to put it, and right. without much analyzing. And certainly there have been songs that didn't work on an album, but I don't think we thought of it in terms of this song doesn't fit. The way sure. we think of things is we didn't deliver this uh, good enough for this album, so we'll hold on to it. It's more of that kind of a thing. Sure. It, it, early in your career as a songwriter, I mean, you know, and this is kind of looking at it both solo and as a band, you know, you mentioned Drop D, for example, and you're a band that, that kind of, you know, really got its its start, at least commercially in the in the late 80s, where, you know, Drop D wasn't something people were used to hearing, for example. Um, do, do songs sometimes, you know, you have to look at kind of what's going on in the musical climate around it, or is that something you guys can just say the hell with we are you know we are King's X or I'm Ty and this is this is what I'm going to make now. Obviously now as you know at this point in the music industry anything goes. But was that something you considered or did you have people at, at labels kinda poo poo songs that you may have thought were, were magical even at the time? I I think we have gone through this entire career kind of naively, you know, just blundering through. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't, I don't, I don't even know for sure how to answer that. We just, we just don't really. Uh, we're all about feelings. We're all about uh, whatever the right feel is at the right moment, and that's the only thing really dictating anything we do. And we don't really think of rules or what else is happening in the music business or anything like that at, at all. Uh, if the, if we do think of it at all, it's more of a oh boy, our stuff really doesn't fit what's happening. Yeah. I hope that you know people be okay with it. That that's about as far as I ever think about what's happening out there. But because we can only be ourselves, so I think we just naively, you know, did what the only thing we knew tr- to be true to ourselves, and we knew it wouldn't fit anything else out there. Yeah, and so we couldn't worry about it. And that might be why, you know, 30-plus years into your career, we're still kind of having this conversation because you guys didn't, you know, just blow your hair up to the sky and follow the same trends of of so many of the bands that kind of launched at the same time. Where, you know, especially in that very late part of the 80s, a lot of record companies were churning out kind of cookie-cutter versions of what happened two or three years prior, and those bands ended up paying the price when musical winds shifted. You guys blazed a path that it seemed like nobody was on at the time, you know, which which maybe is, you know, the brilliance of it, was just doing your own thing, being true to who you were as a writer. Well, it, it's like the brilliance or the curse yeah. <laughs> yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we could. We, we didn't fit in any category. Nobody knew what to do with us, and it, it was like a sore thumb sticking out wrongly yeah. uh, in a lot of situations. But I'm very thankful we were true to ourselves and didn't worry too much about anything else because yeah. I think you're right. That's why we still get to do it. Yeah. How many bands that, that you know came out in the same year? I, I remember working in radio at the time, and 
I remember getting your album. This is, what is this? You know, it was very different. But, you know, a lot of those bands that were doing what was in vogue at the moment then tried to change their sound when Nirvana came and changed the landscape. They tried to go to a, you know, sort of an angry hair metal sound, which didn't make a lot of sense or ring true with, with a lot of listeners. So it ended up, you know, kind of going the wrong way. You guys were were clearly on your own path, and those who got it, got it, and you stayed with it. Um, much has been made about your tone, your, your, your sound, your guitar sound. Uh, you know, I can think of a handful of guys, Eric Johnson, Eddie Van Halen, who people really seem to obsess about gear with. Um, do you give it nearly as much thought as your fans do as a player? Um, yeah, I mean, I do... I do really concentrate on guitar tones um, because that's what was magic to me when I was a kid growing up. I would, mm. If I heard something played with I, the tone of it, would be what what would move me or not. You mm. know, in other words, uh, like for instance, uh, let me think of what it's called, uh, "Let It Flow" mm-hmm. by Eric Clapton. At the very end, it just has this repeating. Uh, guitar phrase that's uh, you know a high uh, clangy kind of part but it rings and chimes and I remember the first time I heard that tone uh, I think it's, it, that's a good example of, of the kind of things that stick out to me because I heard exceptional tone and it's what really made the part stick out and the Beatles had exceptional tones on guitars uh, and made their parts stick out now, I've always gravitated to what what uh, sounds best, not what is played best, because a lot of other people were better musicians than the Beatles, and I didn't care at all about what they were doing because it didn't even sound good to me. And they were tone freaks, and so I guess I, because they were my number one influence, I've always been a tone freak too. And so, yeah, it's extremely important to me uh, how the guitars lay. A landscape and how different parts uh, are heard through through having different tones, and I try I try to make all of them as good as I can. In in a world now where, you know, and uh, I'm assuming you recorded the digital. If I'm wrong, please correct me. But I mean, you're in a world where at least digital editing is, is so much less expensive, for lack of a better phrase, than it was at the beginning of your career. Are you a player yeah. who who is kind of obsessive on getting the perfect take because it's you're not in a situation now where you've, you're in multi-million dollar studios that you know the clock's running and you've got to get get out. I mean, are you a person who kind of obsesses on getting it perfect, or are you kind of have a X number of strikes and that's just the way the take is going to be? Um, I don't think I really worry about perfection as much as did it feel good. Mm-hmm. Did, it, did it feel right? Um, once again, I can bring up the Beatles. Sometimes m- my favorite vocals of theirs are the ones that are a little bit off. Yeah. Or, you know, the guitar part that isn't perfectly with the snare all of a sudden in one little spot. You know, those kind of things add such a life and magic to music that for me, getting everything perfect. Uh, sterilizes everything, so I don't. I never think in terms of this has got to be perfect. It's just got to feel good, and um, I don't give it very many tries because once you start forcing the issue, it's hard to get good feel yeah. if it just isn't happening. 
I'll give something two or three tries. If it's not happening, I'll move on to something else and I'll come back later and it may happen easily the next time. So I'm, I'm trying to just follow the flow and not force the issue. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> do, much. You, do you still marvel at the speed at which they would produce recordings? I mean, it, it's almost mind-boggling to see how fast they were able to produce stuff in the studio. It is mind-boggling until you realize that all of those albums and everything that you're hearing are being played pretty much live, yeah. including vocals, all at the same time. So it's just live performance, and they play it over and over and over and over and take the best one. If you think of it that way, you can, you know, if a band is good enough to do that, it makes sense to be able to do an album in a day, uh, yeah. like the Beatles did. But uh, the way most of us record is not that way, and so it would be impossible to, to yeah. record that fast. But when a band is that good, it does make sense. Yeah, it, it is. It's a, it's amazing. And when you think about uh, the 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 quality of of in the timeless classics and the and the sheer volume of songs the Beatles certainly very few ever will be like that but uh, Ty I want to thank yeah. you so much obviously the the new record Shades comes out on the fourth of March uh, on Rat Pack who and the great folks at Rat Pack always have such creative packaging and bundles we'll share the link uh, for those um, do you guys uh, either individually if, or or as a is the King's X unit have further plans for the year? I know you guys have kind of delayed, you know, uh, anticipated album. Do we have any kind of news on that front? I think there's about to be an announcement made here very soon uh, concerning that. But uh, yes, we're, we're planning on being out there touring this year and uh, and promoting the new record. And uh, as far as we know it's coming out this year i uh, can't really say the date yet like i said sure. the uh, record company is about to start doing promotion and announcing all that stuff but yes we we have a new album that's coming and we will be out there playing fantastic well ty i want to thank you and uh folks can get that album through rat pack we'll share the links and, and hopefully we'll see you on the road very soon ty thank you so much thank you very much big thank you to mr ty Tabor again the new album Shades is available now. You can hear my voice. I highly recommend, uh, even if you're a, a digital music downloader or a streamer, uh, check out Rad Pack Records' website. We'll include a link in the show notes over at ironcityrocks.com. Rad Pack always has an amazing array of products uh, to make record buying fun. You want a cassette? They've got a cassette. You want signed copies? You want vinyl copies? You want demo pressings of vinyl? Rat Pack is is the record company, home to a lot of great musicians. George Lynch, Michael Sweet uh, have done stuff with Rat Pack, and it's always exciting to see what the combinations they come up with. We're going to turn our attention now to a band, oddly enough, another band who has yet to be on Iron City Rocks, the band The Kentucky Headhunters. Uh, Mr. Greg Martin, guitarist uh, and vocalist of the band, uh, one of the vocalists, and that's one of the things we talk about in the interview is is their latest album, That's a Fact Jack, which came out in very late uh, 2021. Um, it's such a, a, an interesting listen because it goes through so many different musical styles. Um, they utilize most of the band on lead vocals at some point. Um, at one point, they had a dedicated singer uh, who had departed the band uh, many years ago, and, and they've 
gone in some very different uh, and interesting musical directions all at the same time. Um, you know, a lot of bands will do an album, kind of change up their sound, maybe chase a trend in the musical industry, do another album, and, and kind of evolve. You know, even even incredibly inspiring musicians like David Bowie went in many, many different directions throughout his career. The Kentucky Headhunters, on this latest album, uh, to, to my enjoyment, did it all in the same record. Um, so it's a very, very interesting listen. And um, if you're listening to this from the western Pennsylvania area, um, home to Iron City Rocks, I, I am happy to report that the Kentucky Headhunters will be doing a show in July on the 15th at the Ruby Amphitheater in Morgantown, West Virginia, which uh, if you live in western Pennsylvania, you realize how quick of a drive Morgantown, West Virginia is uh, and an awesome place to see a show. It's an easy drive in and out of Morgantown uh, from 79 or the uh, different avenues into West Virginia. So easy drive, great band, July, you know, outside stuff, going to be awesome. So really was excited to get a chance to talk to them. So without further ado, we're going to play you a little bit off the album. That's a fact, Jack. Get into the interview with Greg Martin.
my pleasure to welcome to Iron City Rocks from the Kentucky Headhunters. We have Greg Martin on the line. How are you doing, Greg? I'm doing great, John. How are you? I am wonderful here. Uh, we are just a few well, weeks, months, I should say, at this point, um, past the date, well, the, the release of That's a Fact, Jack, the album from the Kentucky Headhunters. This is, I believe, your eighth studio album. Um, quite an uh, eclectic mix of songs. Um but I, I noticed going down through the liner notes, you guys, you know, it looks like this is quite a band effort for each of these songs, but yet the songs vary so much in, in musical style, which is kind of a hallmark of the Kentucky Headhunters. Is there, you know, yeah. when you're putting music together, is that's just something that naturally happens? Or do you guys say, you know, hey, we need a little bit more of a, you know, a Scotty Moore kind of, you know, Carl Perkins sort of thing on this song. We want a little bit, you know, more country on this song. How does that kind of manifest itself? It it just kind of happens naturally, really. Um, and it's funny that you brought up Scotty Moore uh, because there is one song that kind of lends itself to that. Absolutely. And uh, heart, heart and soul. Heart yeah. And soul. Is that the one you were? Uh, yeah, yeah. I was listening and, in the car. I'm like, I wonder if this is a cover song or you know, I had to go back and. Uh, to look at that but no that one's all you um you know i'm assuming he was a pretty big influence oh i love i love uh from a guitar standpoint i love scotty moore yeah mm-hmm. yeah i had a chance to play with him oh wow. I-, I actually played with ronnie dowell from 1981 to 89 and if you know anything about ronnie which we played Pittsburgh all the time back in the 80s man i've been up there a while. well with the headhunters too of course sure and i even played up there Entered one time. I, I was subbing for Ed King, so I've been all over, you know, your area. Yeah. But going back to my McDowell days, he was very steeped in Elvis and rockabilly. Mm-hmm. And when I started with his band, I, I knew who Scotty Moore and I knew who James Burton was, and I I knew the lineage, but I didn't really never had had really delved into it and studied the rockabilly side. And when I played with Ronnie, I. I started learning more about the sun side of the rockabilly thing and mm-hmm. learning about um, Hank Garland and people that played on, you know, Grady Martin, people that played on Burnett Brothers records. But Scotty Moore, gosh, you know, with uh, Bill Black, it, it, man, what did they do? They they just created a, a monstrous sound, you know. Yeah. You know, with that Scotty Moore and his uh, Ray Butts amplifier with the echo. You know that's that's a big hallmark of that, and the song in particular that you're talking about, um, "Heart and Soul," was actually written. I'm not really sure, but it's probably in the late '90s or early 2000s when Anthony Kenny was in the band on bass, hmm. and uh, we had a tape of it, and we listened to it, but we weren't quite happy with what we had done with it. And somehow we fell in it to that little rockabilly groove thing, and it just worked out perfect. And uh, we threw some slap back on the guitar, and we went for it. (laughs) Yeah, it it came out awesome. And like I said, the the album has such, you know, from one track to the next, it almost reminds Mm -hmm. me in a way, and and this is not at all a a knock, but it's almost like a um, compilation of of such different styles, you know, track to track. and that's why I wonder, like, when you guys, you know, you you put some of these songs together, obviously some of them, you know, you mentioned are on cassettes and you, you had them for a while. But, like, 
how does that when you're you know sitting down with the guys you know, the other musicians and, and you know the, you know kind of coming up with this stuff does it just somebody starts noodling and everybody just kind of jumps in and, yeah. and it gets its own personality yeah there, there's several ways a song can happen with the headhunters uh, Richard or Doug or Fred or whoever could be working on something at home and bring it in you know the, the uh, just the outline of it and then we make it into a headhunter song or just like Dumas Walker many years ago it just kind of came out of the blue it dropped out of the sky from a jam session at the practice house you know and those right there are uh, amazing when that happens and there's been a lot of songs like that but this particular album is very diverse and I guess what you're saying you know it's music schizophrenia maybe yeah. <laughs> you know? it's all over the map and I'm looking at the I'm looking at the list you know and uh, you know we're, this album is very much a product of the pandemic because mm. if you go back to 2019 you know we did our normal headhunter thing you know we toured 65 75 dates that year and, you know, it was a normal year as we knew it. Right. And then going into 2020, we thought we had another normal year coming. And we had done about three, maybe four shows early in 2020. And then uh, we played in Alexandria, Virginia at the Birchmere mid-February. And we were already hearing about the virus. Mm. Uh, so we went home and we had three weeks off and we're going to reconvene in March and start touring again. And of course, lo and behold, dates started moving, dates started dropping out, yeah. things went on lockdown. And initially we thought, well, it's going to be a two-week thing, <laughs> three weeks, four weeks, or something like that. But you saw what happened, you know, and yeah. it just became a... We stayed at home that year and um, I think we ended up doing nine shows that year and the very last show of that year I missed because I actually had COVID uh -huh. and I had to quarantine for like two days and uh, not a bad case but it was enough to yeah. keep me up my butt in the house you know yeah, yeah. and um, so you know we originally the plan was to get together at the end of the touring season November October November and uh, get together at the practice house, bring all the songs together, bits of songs, ideas, jam, and come up with an idea because we knew an album was imminent. We had to do a new album because it had been a while. So the last studio album that we had done was 2016 was uh, on Safari, I believe. But then we did the, you know, then we had the on, uh, Live at Ramblin' Man which had maybe like three tracks with Johnny Johnson tagged at the end, but uh, we, we knew we had to come up with a new album. So, you know, when I got COVID, you know, we're getting ready to go into the holiday season, and we pretty much decided say, hey, you know, um, let's get together in January, February. And what happened, John, we ended up uh, just meeting at the studio in February with every idea we had and working them up on the floor, and that's what happened. I, I believe that's 
where the diversity came from because every song really is different, you know. Yeah. And, um, there was no grand scheme of things, you know. Uh, I, I believe there was, we wanted to have a real stone blues song on there. And we had a version of Rock Me Baby, but we never could track down the master that we'd done of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it never made it. But we had a, you know, going to be all right. It's yeah. kind of got that bluesy feel. Absolutely. Beginning, you know? Yeah. I, yeah. I, I have and, to uh, say, in that track, the, the, um, the out, I think it was the outro solo, if I remember. It was just perfect because I'm listening to the song and I'm like, they ought to put an outro solo here. And, and not a millisecond later, you came in with that. So. One of the the things I think oh, thank you. I think that's so interesting is is you know obviously for for you know kind of in the band's you know platinum era you know the the, the early years you had a full on singer but now you guys have and maybe this goes to to the style you know you have a variety of people stepping up to the mic and I think everybody sings a, you know a lead or two on this album almost reminiscent of the Beatles. Yeah. Is that, I mean, how, how does oh, that, that process yeah. kind of come in? Do you say, you know, this one needs a little more rasp, we'll get, you know, you sing it or, you know, a little cleaner, this one, or, or is it kind of whoever just decides to step forward on that particular song, or is there some thought that goes into that level? Well, whoever was brave enough, yeah. I guess, right? Yeah. Uh, you're, you're right. This, this album is probably the most diverse album we've, mm-hmm. we've ever done. It's kind of like a, Kind of like the Beatles uh, fight out with maybe so yeah, to speak. You yeah, know, and, I, and I that's know. high praise. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I mean that in all sincerity. I think that's one of the things that makes it such an enjoyable listen. Is it? It's not twelve songs of you know the same kind of exact country rock right. thing. You've got ebb flow. You've got you know the first song full on blues, you know, heart and soul, very rockabilly, and I think that makes it a very fun and very interesting listen. Um, yes, sir. You know, so that, uh, but I mean, the, well, I, you know, I agree. I'm sorry, you go I mean, ahead. This, this is this is a very different album. Uh, normally, normally, Doug does the lion's share of the singing. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if you go back to the early, as you say, the platinum years, you know, there was uh, uh, the the first two albums, Electric Barnyard and Picking on Nashville. Ricky Phelps did all the singing. Mm-hmm. You know, all the lead vocals. And then, as you know, we had an implosion in 92, and uh, the Phelps brothers left, and we brought in uh, Mark Orr. And still, we always just had basically <laughs> uh, a singer, you know, singing yeah. all the lines. Um, when did we start? Richard started stepping up and singing more of the rock stuff, the rock blues stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for instance, you know, he sings, uh, that's a fact, Jack. Uh, he sings uh, Watercolors in the Rain and uh, Let's All Get Together and Fight. Now, Fred had sang years ago on Dry Land Fish, you know, m- many years ago. Mm-hmm. That would have been on the uh, Restoring Ranch album. And why the, this, this album, he ends up bringing in two songs. He sang Cheap Tequila, written by Rick Derringer, and he also sang Cup of Tea, a song he wrote about us going to England. Mm-hmm. I ended up singing Shotgun Effie, and that, that the reason why that happened, Shotgun Effie, we wrote together, Richard, Fred, Anthony, Kenny, and myself wrote that back in 1973. And there was a 45 record floating around out there 
uh, rock and roller is on one side, which we actually end up covering that. Okay. Meet Me in Bluesland, these albums back. But we have never attempted to do Shotgun Ampy. And originally, Fred Young wanted me to sing Cheap Tequila, and I went through it one time. I said, you know what? And I, my, my singing chops are way down. I don't even claim to be a lead vocalist. Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know. But I said, listen, if we're gonna, if I'm gonna do anything, let's take a shot at Shotgun Effie, because we did that as kids. Let's bring it forward to 2021, and let's see what we can do with it. And at least we'll have it archived, and we'll have it on an album, because there is. If you go out on YouTube. And you look up Itchy Brother, which was our little rock band mm -hmm. in the 70s. The 45 record, somebody's got it. There's a couple of different versions of it up there. You know, they're, it's just a scratchy old record, you know. And uh, so initially I thought, well, let's go in and maybe change it up a little bit. And let's do it a little different. Let's pull it back. Let's make it swampier. Uh Lo and behold, we went in there and we did it just about the way we did back in '73. I mean, except I, we're, I said we're playing better. Yeah, we're in the groove better. I can't say I'm singing any better because <laughs> I haven't sang the darn thing. You know, I can't say it because I, I haven't sang it since 1973. Honestly, '74, '73, hadn't even thought about it. And uh, but it came out. It's a good little raucous number, you know, as far yeah. as rock and roll. Yeah. And, um, of course, Fred Young brought it. Cheap Tequila was a song that he had been infatuated with for years. He loved the Johnny Winter version. He loved Rick Derringer's version on All-American Boy. And he kept, I mean, I can remember him back in the early 90s saying we should cut that. And uh, so we, we, we come up with a version we felt like was different than Johnny and Rick's, and we come up with our own thing on it. And after I sang it once, I didn't feel it, and Fred went and done it. And uh, it's a very group, you know, I've thought about that. It's a very group effort. Yeah. Um, that's that's the... Somebody, somebody, in, somebody in England said, uh, you guys aren't the traveling Wilburys. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're the traveling Dingleberries. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you copyright that. That's, you know, I mean, but I think, I think uh, that... that uh, like I said, I think it goes a long way to making for a very, you know, a very interesting album for a listening Thank standpoint, you. you know, to go through that. Can you talk, uh, the, the first single... Everybody's stepping out singing. You, you like it pretty well? You're yeah, okay with it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the uh, the, the song selection, um, how could I, the, the song... Um, that, that Richard co-wrote with the guys from Blackstone Cherry. I mean, obviously they're from Kentucky. You're from Kentucky. Was this just kind of an organic meeting, or how did that kind of transpire? You know, I would think Richard wrote that song with Blackstone Cherry probably in the early days. Okay. I'm not sure when that was written, but in the studio, Richard brought a cassette out with the song, and... Um, it it was way different than the way we did it. I can't remember exactly. It, it could have been in a minor key. I don't even remember. I just knew that uh, if we're going to do it, let's change it up. So I, I did a I, I tuned the guitar to like an open G or A. I can't remember now. <laughs> we haven't played it out yet. We're going to have to relearn it. Let's <laughs> go back and figure out the tuning. 
Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I have to go back and figure it out. And uh, so what we end up doing with that song is, I think it's kind of like the Rolling Stones meet Georgia Satellites or something. Yeah, you know, it's kind of but headhunter. It's very headhunterish too. You know, it's it's got the headhunter trademark, but it, it's kind of coming from Exile on Main Street, you know, and that that type of thing that, that pulled back. Chuck Berry groove, and um, it, it's, it's one of my favorite songs on there. I thought it came out real well. Yeah, and that, that's know. that's a great think. great reference to the Georgia Satellites. I had just not that yeah. long ago kind of dug out their debut album, and I, I have talked to Dan oh, Baird yeah. in the past. And, and it's such a phenomenal record, you know. I, I and then I you know and that does fit. You you could throw that right into their mix and it would have worked out perfectly so that's it's a great analogy but such a great kind of rocking song to be a lead-off single you know and i was uh, well thank you um we love dan baird we love the, the satellites so uh, back in 20 i guess it was 2019 we uh the last time we went to england we toured with Dan Baird and Homemade Sin and Jason and the Scorchers. Oh, that's a hell of a deal. And it was so cool, man. It was fun. We, um, I love the way Dan Baird plays. I love his singing. I love his writing. I love Mario's drumming. Of course, I love Warner Hodges, you know, mm-hmm. as a guitar player. Uh, love Jason. So it was so fun hanging with those guys. And, and I know those guys influences, but also there's a Kentucky mix. You know, this this part of the country just has a natural inbred sound. Yeah. I shouldn't say inbred, sure. well, inbred. But yeah, I, I guess. <laughs> gotta be careful <laughs> with that. Crazy. But anyway, it's just the sound that's in the water around here. You know, every mm-hmm. part of this state has its own facet. You know, like. A, Eastern Kentucky, you got Tyler Chillers, you got Chris Stapleton, you got Sturgill Simpson, and you got all these laid back country picker, Dave Prince. You got a lot of folks in that area. They got their own stamp, which is not that far apart from what we do, but it, they're a little more mountainous, you know. Sure. And then you get over to around Lexington. Lexington's got more of a uh, indie type thing going. Then you get over here, it's like blues and rock and roll and soul music had a you know there was a head-on collision or something you know and then you get over into the western part of the states you get into the thumb picking and different stuff Mm -hmm. but uh yeah the georgia satellites (laughs) that album i think it it was like a gunshot that everybody every band like us heard when it when it hit you know or to keep your hands to yourself man it was like yeah yeah real rock and roll is back it was it was an interesting timing on that album because you had the whole '80s sort of thing. I mean, even your album, come you know, coming out in the you know the middle of big hair and you know, metal and things like that. You know, and synthesizers and stuff. And you know, it was a great to get that shot of organic rock uh, uh, there. You know, yes, and wonderful to see, see the success. Yeah. The um oh yeah, it, it was an interesting time as you know the '80s. Uh, we, you know, we had really tried hard with Itchy Brother to secure a record deal. Mm-hmm. And we came really close with Swan Song Records 
And uh, after John Bonham passed away, you know, that, uh, and we did some showcases and with disco, rearing its head, yeah. and the tragedy of Zeppelin losing the Bonham. Swan Song just kind of lost interest. You know, they went, they kind of put things on the shelf, and it came apparent by 1981 we all had to do some different stuff to, you know, right. to, to make a bills, living. Yeah. And I, yeah, I ended up going to Nashville. Which was eye opening because I came out of a really itchy brother, or Richard Fred Anthony and me. That was a really great rock and roll band, and I I don't mind bragging on that band at all. It's way different than the Headhunters. Uh, mm-hmm. It was uh, the only country in that band was the way we talk. You know, right? Um, it really wasn't. It was more of an English. It kind of had an English vibe to it. Um, course that's kind of hard you know coming from south central kentucky but you know we were very much steeped in the who yeah. cream uh let's uh free and uh montrose which is an american band but you know it was that type of thing of a yeah. power rock band uh, but you know going through the 80s we took different things richard went to work writing songs at acuff rose honing in his his writing skills fred ended up taking a, a a drumming job with Sylvia. I ended up playing with Ronnie McDowell for eight and a half years where I met Doug Phelps. And so there was a lot of life lived between that time. And by the time we put the headhunters together for fun in 86, you know, we started bringing these other elements in that we had never tried before. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we had really never played much rockabilly until uh, 86, you know, with, uh, and that, that, that kind of came through, well, everybody was studying the roots, you know, blues and rockabilly and soul music. And still, the rock and roll element was there. But, yeah, man, you know, uh, there's just so many elements that go into this band. Yeah. And so much life. And it was, a re, you know, the way, the little path, how it, how it happened, how we even got together is crazy, too. Because the very first day I started with Ronnie McDowell, Doug Phelps, auditioned as well and that's how i met doug phelps which is a he ended up you know joining our band sure in 86 we'll put it back together and because anthony didn't want to he didn't want to go through the record deal chasing thing anymore and uh of course doug brought ricky and as you know about 88 we showcased in nashville at douglas corner and um, there was one label interested in the band at the time and after they heard us, said, well, you guys are way too rock and roll for Nashville. But lo and behold, Harold Shedd was there, who had just taken over the reins at Mercury Records. And he loved what we were doing. And by 89, we uh, had paperwork going back and forth. The lawyers, and we ended up signing a deal in the summer of 89. And you see what happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In 1990, you're on the charts in the U.S. and, and mining platinum. Oh. Can I ask uh, how how bittersweet was it to finally get a chance to make your debut at the Grand Ole Opry this past December? Was that you know was that ever did you think that would happen based on you know kind of being turned away at at one point? No, honestly, of course, Judd Fred and I had done the Opry with with artists. You know, I had done it with Ronnie McDowell. And Fred had done it, and we knew what it was all about. And of course, back in the '80s, it was a different, different thing. Absolutely. And we were offered, 
yeah, evidently there was a, you know, we were asked to do it maybe, I don't know, it came up one time that we were supposed to do it in the early 90s and supposedly Roy Acuff didn't like our looks and hair and so that never happened. But there was another time, and I can't think of the year, I think it was like 2012 or something that it came back up, but they wouldn't let us bring our amplifiers. And we said, no, thank you. We appreciate it. And after that, honestly, I thought, well. It's not going to, not in the cards. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll never do it. And it came up on the bus last year. And we thought, well, why not? You know, and they had, they had actually loosened up and said, well, you know, if you guys want to bring small amps and or whatever. I mean, obviously, they weren't going to let us bring Marshall stacks, which I understand that. And uh, they seemed to be more open to what we were doing mm-hmm. so we did we went in with our eyes wide open we didn't know what to expect but let me tell you it was a great experience it, it went over really well they treated us like gold the, the audience was amazing we got a standing ovation uh it was like wow yeah <laughs> yeah i guess this was supposed to happen when it happened you know yeah no time yeah it, it was the right time to happen that that's fantastic. Well, Greg, I don't want to keep you. Oh no, man! Uh, you know, it was a great thing to happen. It's going to be on the Circle Channel in uh, I guess it'll be April, I believe. Okay, what, cool. We'll have to watch for that. Circle Network, and we'll be on the road this year. We'll be on the road doing our normal dates, and we'll be working up these songs, some of these songs, and getting out there and doing it uh, I'm not sure if John told you I, I've been doing a, a radio show oh, okay. in Bowling Green Kentucky for 20 over 20 years it's called the Lowdown Hoedown it's really a blues show but we take uh, we take liberties with the genre sure. and uh, I mean, like one week I might Hey, here's some. You know, I might play Wilson Pickett. I may play Stacks. I may play music that was recorded in Muscle Shoals, yeah. or I'll be playing Texas blues, Chicago blues, or whatever. It's music with deep roots, sure. and um, it's on a station out of Bowling Green, Kentucky, a classic rock station, WDNS, on the FM dial in South Central Kentucky, ninety three point three. But anybody can listen to it worldwide. You can go to uh, WDNSFM.com. And like I say, last November we celebrated 20 years. I've had, gosh, John Sebastian on the show, John Oates. I've had Elvin Bishop, Peter Frampton, uh, Billy Gibbons, Paul Rogers from Bad Company. A lot of different people have called in and we've done on, on air chats. So I, that, that's something I do every Monday night from 7 to 10 Central Monday. Standard Time. Excellent. We'll have to check that yeah. out. I'm glad you mentioned to, listening to it on the web. You know, I think that's one of the beauties of yeah of you know i still yeah, love terrestrial radio always have um got my start there as well yeah. and it but it's so awesome to be able to kind of pick it up no matter where you're at you know for those of us not in kentucky um you know get a chance to listen to that how well, old are you Jim? i am 49 and nine tenths at this point hanging on by a thread john there was a there was a dj I may be wrong about this, but I'm sure. Was there a station, AM station, WMO or something? 
there was there was a DJ, an underground DJ, back in the '60s. Have you ever heard of a guy named Brother Love? Yeah, yeah, I, I've heard you know the stories. Brother of... Love, he's 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 long gone, but he did an underground radio show on on some AM station up there because I've got air checks. Great. And, and I love listening to this guy because he's talking about the underground scene and. Pittsburgh at the time, yeah, you know, and talk about some of the head shops and record stores, and yeah, yeah. Uh, it's pretty amazing. It, it's actually on YouTube. You look up Brother Love. I can't remember the station uh, call letters, but to check I love radio. Too. Yeah, I, I was more of a child of the 80s um, myself, just based on when I was born. And, and sure, Yeah, I remember getting the, the debut album. I was the program director at the radio station that I went to college at. And, um, you know, I, I, so I was picking out the playlist and I remember distinctly getting that album and being glued to the daddy was a milkman song. Cause I was like, this is just perfect. You know, we were in a, in a pretty rural college, so it was kind of a, a, a neat song to stick in there amongst all the, you know, the, a lot of the traditional music college radio stations got at the time. I, um, so I, I, I really album. Album's pretty special. I don't know how we pulled that off, but uh, yeah, it sure has served well, and it uh, gave us a strong foundation to build on. I'll tell you, uh, wow. I, you know, for years, you know, we just been out there working and touring and recording albums. But you know, uh, here a while back, I listened to that album. And I went, "Whoa, what yeah. were we thinking back then?" Yeah, it's <laughs> always know? it was just a Fun, yeah. fun when guys go back and listen to you know an album you know you you play that music probably so much that you don't probably spend a lot of time listening to your own stuff um you know to go back and kind of almost reminisce as you're listening to it, it it's got to be a fun experience um, well yeah yeah do you guys it, it, it's interesting have i'm sorry tour dates in mind yet i, I was looking at your site Oh, you do have them up on your side. No, no, go ahead. You're fine. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I was just thinking about that album. I was just thinking, but some of it, I, you know, like the, uh, my daddy was a milkman. I was thinking, what possessed me to even go back in there and do that feedback thing at the very end of it because yeah. that wasn't done on country. Thank you so much again. I really, really appreciate your time, Greg. All right, thank you, man. You All right. have a great weekend. You okay? too, man. Take care. Bye bye. All right. All right, that about wraps up this episode of Iron City Rocks. Again, Ty Tabor with his album Shades is available now. Uh, hopefully we'll be seeing some King's X news uh, in the very short order and hopefully some tour dates in the western Pennsylvania area and really all across the United States. Um, had an opportunity to see them uh, way too long ago, I have to admit. I saw them open a show for a co-headlining tour with Dream Theater and Joe Satriani. It was a phenomenal night of music. For those of you who remember, that was at the A.J. Palumbo Center. Uh, really a, a cool night of music. Was really blown away by King's X. Was not that familiar with the band outside of, you know, kind of the Gretchen Goes to Nebraska kind of uh, album, but really enjoyed the set. So check that out, Ty's uh, album available now. Also, for those who like the Kentucky Headhunters, that's Fact Jack is available now. Again, they'll be in Morgantown, West Virginia on July 15th to do a show. Um, 
some great music there and uh, I invite you to check that out I was really really surprised I remember um, like it was yesterday getting uh, a copy of uh, one of I believe it was their debut album that had um, my daddy was a milkman on it and just enjoying the hell out of that song because I thought it was such a kind of a fun tongue-in-cheek uh, song to have on the album and, and I'm glad to see that they are still doing it and doing it well at this stage of their career so fantastic for them I invite you to check out ironcityrocks.com we are on facebook instagram youtube twitter you name it we're on it uh you can get to all of it from ironcityrocks.com you can hit us up at ironcityrocks at gmail.com let us know what you think of the show do you like some diversity in episodes do you prefer episodes that are all more genre specific uh, maybe a more metal episode a more classic rock episode or do you like it when we mix it up in the midst of a single episode let us know um, invite you to check out the show notes we'll have links to ty and to the kentucky headhunters material also invite you if you are a pittsburgher uh, to check out pittsburgh magazine uh, they are doing their annual awards and would ask that you would consider voting or nominating Iron City Rocks on our best podcast. Um, always love to be able to uh, get the word out about the show uh, any way we can. Um, it's not cheap to advertise on social media, so it's great to have word of mouth and uh, your opinions helping drive listenership. So we appreciate it very much if you take the time to do that. So until next time, thank you so much for listening. <laughs>